0: It's a special Valentine's Day edition. I'm Zach. He's Al and this is the Gray Zone. My Go heart goes it. out to you,
1: all of our listeners. My heart goes out to you. Hey, of if course. you don't um if you're tuning in for the first time, I think episode two or three, one of those, we talk about sort of um who Zach is, who who I am, and what why the podcast is named what it is. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Hi, Zach.
0: Oh, hey, how's it going?
1: <laughs> good, How are you? Um all good. So um, <laughs> I walked by a parent, and um, that's an avid listener of the pod. And they just actually said, "Hey, I'd, I'd love for you to do, get into something that's like psychological to do with with juniors." And we've touched on that a little bit. On so my car ride home, I was just thinking to myself about, like, okay, well, what could Zach and I chat about that would be psychological? Um, and there's lots of things, but one thing that came front of mind was, I think if you look at a lot of junior junior players' profiles on UTR or whatever, whatever site you look at, look at results on. So many players, you just see that they they beat players who are ranked lower than them and they lose to players who are ranked above them. And they very, very rarely have wins over players who are perceived to be better than them. And yeah. my guess is that's probably 75% of juniors fall in that category. Maybe more. Um, now this is anecdotal. I don't know this to be true or not. But then so I was thinking like, well, what it what are the characteristics of a player that doesn't fall in that category? Like a player that just for some reason continues to more often than not, beat players who are ranked above them, and it's got to be psychological to some extent, right? But I guess that yeah. I'd, I'd throw that question at you, and then see where you went with it.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually really valuable. I remember one year, uh, coaching, and I was, uh, I was, I was almost keeping track, not really intentionally, but we were like, you know, midway through the year, and I was going like, oh man, like I was coaching I don't know, four or five players, and I was like, oh, all of them but one have had a really good upset win this year. And that was sort of my metric of like, has this been a good like a good yeah. half year? And of course, that's not the only metric, but but it really, it just in my gut, it really meant something. You know, like if you, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, if you go about and you just consistently, like you said, play completely average, you beat the players below you, you lose the players above you. In my head, that's not really progress, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you right. know, of course, maybe your UTR gets better and your serve gets better, but then everyone else is as well. And at the end of the day, mm-hmm. this is a competition and the, you're trying to you're trying to beat people and, and move up the rankings and move up the tournament results so yeah i think that i think that's really important as a measure of progress but also i think it's a when you get those wins i think they're a confidence builder for the players of course because it shows them that hey this is i'm not restricted to sort of this class or this level um yeah. i can actually perform up in this up at this level um so i, I do think it's really important and then like you said i, I think it's I think it's psychological for sure. I think it has to do with the, you know, the, yeah, your own beliefs about yourself and, and, you know, which are limiting beliefs and which ones are are helping beliefs. Um, But I think that that influences how you approach the matches for sure. Yeah.
1: And I I think a lot about like I have, I'm lucky to have a couple of players that just like their mindset seems to be that they've never fathomed that they shouldn't win the match they're playing. Right. They've just their entire life, they've never thought that there's a possibility. Like, at worst, they've been like, all right, there's 50 50 chance I can win. Mm -hmm. Like, that's been their mindset at worst. Yeah. At worst, I should say. And I I don't really know how they developed it. But then I've thought more about it in a sense where years ago, having beers with a couple of coaches, uh, one of my buddies, Moran Mann, who's uh, the director at Richmond Hill Country Club, Richmond Hill Lawn Country Club, something like that. It's one of the Richmond Hill Clubs. Um, He was talking about like high level NFL quarterbacks. He said apparently that, like, they've they've all done this psychological testing that would suggest that they pretty much all of them fall into the same psychological characteristics, uh, common characteristics um, as each other. Now, I text him to be like, hey, remind me what that study was called. Um, but I guess he's too busy of a professional and he's, like, actually working in the middle of the afternoon. So <laughs> he hasn't got back to me yet. But then I started to think, like, well, if you if you rated all these players that do have results that are above and beyond and that just beat, continue to beat guys that are higher ranked than them, are there similar psychological patterns with those athletes.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, off the top of my head, I think like your, yeah, I think it comes down to, to belief. I think that has to be, that has to be part of it. And then, but then I guess also, you know, your ability, like, I think it's very rare that you're going to have an upset over a higher ranked player where you are in control of the match the whole time. Sure. right? I think occasionally that happens, but I think it's very rare. I think it's yeah. more likely that, like, you know, it's a tough three-set match, or maybe you, like, you're down 4-1 in the first, or 5-2, and then, like, oh, 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 all of a sudden it got interesting, and then you won you won the first in the tiebreaker, and then you take the second 6-3, or whatever. Like, I mm-hmm. think there's going to be periods uh, in those upsets where you're losing, and when you're down, and I think, a, I think like I said, this is just off the top of my head, but I think a player's ability then to you know their their grit or their resiliency and their ability to to maintain their focus and their intensity in those moments rather than sort mm-hmm. of fall into the trap of going like ah well now now he's going to serve it out or okay now she's she's got the momentum she's going to win like yeah uh, instead of falling into that trap but continuing not just to believe but also to bring the focus and intensity in those moments um yeah. i think that's got to play a huge role
1: yeah for sure um I remember when I was growing up, I was towards the end of my junior career, I, I played um, in a doubles league and uh, it was it was a men's league, but women were allowed to play. And I played a lot with um, a player that won a bunch of nationals. She went to UCLA named Petra Marinova. And the most profound bit of advice I've ever gotten from anybody ever was Petra would just say to me all the time, hey, just keep it close. You never know what can happen. And it's like she just said it in passing. It wasn't it wasn't like it was supposed to be this thing, whatever, but. As a player, that's been some of the most true advice I've ever gotten in my life, where just keep it close and you never know what can happen. Um, yeah. So I thought I'd share that little, little story. Um, yeah. The other part of this one too is a few years ago when I was working with Adriano Fortivia and, and Eddie Moran um, in, with their organization called called Elevated, for all of our e- elevated athletes at the time, we had, um, we had a very common psychological test done for all the athletes where they essentially answer 500 questions. And it, it's at, and I asked Eddie as well, Eddie Moran, what the what the name of it was, because I forget. And he's obviously too much of a pro as well. So he's probably on court. But um, <laughs> apparently, like they have more data on this. This testing has been done since the 70s and they've got more data on this specific um, testing, whatever, for athletes across the world than anybody else in the world. I think I butchered the way I explained that, but it was interesting. So then we, we did it with our athletes and the results came back and they essentially they surmise these 500 questions into like, three or four character traits and I I remember Mm -hmm. like it was unbelievable how spot on it was it's like this test to a T predicted what these at like what I knew these athletes to be like right and I thought that was it's really interesting from a training perspective too because then the athlete can take that and look at like like one of them was for Matthew Overveld who one of his things was that he's a perfectionist and it's like Mm -hmm. one of the things he has to work really hard at to not be a perfectionist because if you're a perfectionist in tennis wow good luck um but it was interesting for matt to see he's also very analytical so for him to see analytical results that he's a perfectionist it helped his training a lot in the sense where if there was times that he was overly focused on one little thing of technique that he wasn't feeling to be like hey remember the testing said this is something that's going to hold you back um and that was interesting so i wonder like we do all these physical testing we we have all these physical testing markers and we've got all these like i guess to some extent like uh quality norm markers for, for a lot of stuff. And I wonder if we need to have more psychological markers so that kids from an earlier age have a better understanding of who they are psychologically and maybe the way that they need to look at things or overcome things to have more of those upset wins over players that are ranked higher.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that. That last bit, especially, I think is super interesting. I mean, as part of my As part of my master's, one of the things we had to do was was develop, uh, you know, what uh, own the podium uh, calls a gold medal profile, which is like, uh, you know, what are the what are the things the attributes required or what are the attributes of. A gold medalist in your sport um cool. and it's you know in tennis olympic medals don't quite have the same meaning as with other sports that follow the sort of quadrennial schedule but uh so i defined it as sort of top 10 um atp because i had to it would have been too much work to do men's and women's so i focused on the the men's side of things um but then part of that obviously you have to list the technical the tactical attributes and you have to have norms and they have to be backed by everything and then of course there's also the mental stuff um, and so I had some stuff in there just around like grit and and confidence and uh, emotion and arousal regulation and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And there are like scales and tests that you can do to measure. Um, and those have, to a certain extent, been been um, validated. But, um, but the personality type stuff is interesting. I mean, I know like Myers-Briggs, obviously, if I shouldn't say obviously, but, you know, Myers-Briggs is the like INTJ, ENFP, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, that's been around for a long time, but I think it's largely, I don't want to totally say it's BS, but I think in some, it's been at helpful. least its ability to, yeah, I mean, its ability to predict things I think is a little dubious. Um, right. but I was just thinking when you were talking about that test, like there is this thing, like the big five personality traits. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's like yeah. very well established in, in, in psychology, um, yeah. and so for those who don't know, I'm just pulling off Wikipedia here, but the big five are, uh, openness to experience. So are you like curious versus consistent, cautious, uh, conscientiousness? So are you efficient, organized, or are you extravagant, careless, extroversion? So outgoing, energetic versus solitary, reserved agreeableness, yeah. friendly slash compassionate versus critical slash rational and right. neuroticism, sensitive slash nervous versus resilient slash confident. Um, and so I don't know, It just made me think of it when you were talking about that. But I think, um, you know, some things like that, that are that are validated and are um, simple. And like you said, tell you a little bit more, I don't know what the how they connect to, um, you know, the profile of a professional athlete that I don't know. Because um, I mean, I think you can find examples just from press conferences and stuff of different personalities on tour who are doing okay. Yeah um yeah. but of course it does link in as well and we talked about this before but it links in as well with the psychological or the the physical uh the physical attributes that you need to have you can be incredibly coordinated and have a shit attitude and and do relatively well so um yeah. to, and that might have been the the personality traits you outline that might
1: have been what Moran man was talking about because it sounds sounds pretty spot on but mm. the only thing as well with that that podium stuff is i think sometimes athletes might project a certain persona on the podium that might not right. actually be like intrinsically who they are or like who, who they actually are inside, which That's is a I great think, point. another thing to, to think about. Um,
0: I have one other anecdotal story for you. Then I'm going to ask you one question to, to wrap this bit up, but can I, um, can I jump in? Sorry. I don't know yeah, no, if I'm jumping in at the right time, but this is one thing that I've been, I've been thinking about a lot the last few years and I think it's worth mentioning Um, is this idea. It's not groundbreaking, I suppose, but is this idea that every, every personality trait or every characteristic uh, can both be a strength and a weakness. Mm. And I, and once again, and maybe that sounds really simple, but I think it's application. I think it's important for the juniors to understand as well. And so if we take something like perfectionism, since you brought it up, right? Like yeah. obviously the strong side of perfectionism is you go, okay, this person's going to be very, you know, attention to detail is going to be good. They're going to, mm. they're going to keep working. They're not going to be satisfied. They're going to, they're going to be really uh, diligent. And then of course we know what the negative side is, right? Is you're you know too hard on yourself, not satisfied, not happy, focusing on the wrong things because it's not perfect, and so on and so yep. forth. But the same can be said for confidence, right? Confidence is a great thing. But of course, if you're too confident, then uh then of course you get cocky and you get careless and whatever, or you yep. alienate people. And of course, if you're not confident enough, uh, then that you're you know you're insecure in, in tight moments and you don't believe in yourself and you don't push yourself and so on and so forth. So, like mm-hmm. I think the understanding that for players as well to understand like, okay, this is something that comes naturally to you. This is great. This is a strength, but let's also recognize, okay, what are the pitfalls that someone with this personality trait or what are the pitfalls? And I guess you said this, but what are the pitfalls that someone like you will run into? How is this? This is a part of you and that's okay. We don't need to change that, but we need to recognize just like if you're tall, you might need to work on your movement. And if you're short, you might need to work on your serve. Like, I mean, it's simplistic, but like recognizing according to who you are, what are the things that you specifically are going to have to watch out for? It's not about changing who you are, but just yeah. understanding that your path or your, uh, your objectives or your tasks are going to be different uh, because your personality is different than others. I think that's, I've had that conversation with a couple of juniors and I think it's really, um, it's really powerful.
1: That's really interesting. And I, I think it's also like quite mature and smart in your end to, to suggest that, yeah, something that is potentially viewed as a weakness could also be like, well, what, what are the strengths you can get out of that? Right. And I think that's, yeah, it's important to realize for sure. Um, my my one anecdotal story before I, I ask you a final question on this was one boy named Alexander Mitrich who committed to University of Princeton um, and he's an under eighteen national champion in Canada. He's been training a lot in Florida um, at one academy with with Jeff Puhan um, of Puhan Personalized. So actually, side note, I've actually sent a fair amount of my kids to to Jeff down in Florida. He's done a great job with them. But anyway, Alex came back and he'd been playing a lot of Battle of Boca's, um, which are these high level UTR events uh, in Florida. And he quickly kind of went from like an 11 to like getting over over a 12 in a short period of time. So when he came back and I was he was at Nationals, I was just shooting the shit with him because I really liked the kid. And I was like, hey, man, if you don't mind really ask him, like what what changed? Like, how is it that you went from where you were and in a short period of time being over a 12, Um and he thought about it for like, he didn't even think about it for that long, but he's, he's like, honestly, I just stopped giving guys respect. I'm like, what do you mean? Um, and he's just like, I just thought, I just had the mindset that um, what I was normally doing against another 11 was good enough to be the 12. Mm. And it was kind of like really interesting where he gets like, clearly he's got a lot of belief in himself, but he also, I think has this mindset where like what he's doing is good enough. And I think. If you if you hear of all these post match interviews on the WTA or ATP, it's so rare that somebody is like losing a match or getting killed, and they say, "Oh, I just started going for more, and I won, and I came back and won." Like it almost seems like the answer on those things, like, "Oh, I just I always I just put a couple more balls in the court, and then kind of went from there." It seems like the answer in tennis a lot of times is like to to put a couple extra balls in the court, which I thought was an interesting psychology that Alex um, figured out. Um, Yeah. Unless you have something to add to that. My one question for you is if you're a player or a parent listening to this, I mean, we've outlined some personality trait stuff, but like, how would you suggest that a player or a parent, like how do they overcome the whole thing of like beating players who are higher ranked than you?
0: I mean, I think, I think we've outlined some good things already. I think, like you said, you know, be, you know, be aware of yourself i think be aware of your own game and your own personality as well because uh, not to not to put the damper on what you've been saying but of course there's also the players who think they can beat everyone yeah and then and then they go in and, it's, and then and they can't <laughs> and then that's right. hard for them to accept and that maybe affects the way that they play because they feel like yeah i should uh no my game's good enough i can beat him and it's like well no you might actually have to make a couple of tactical adjustments here because because uh, you're not going to beat him um so i mean i think like know your game and know yourself really well is big um but then also yeah like like your friend said understand that if you make it close anything can happen and junior i mean junior especially in junior tennis right Mm -hmm. and so I, i think like don't ever don't ever sell yourself short in that regard. I guess that's the difference is the difference between I will beat him or her and I can beat him or her. That's the difference, right? If you go in feeling like you will beat everyone, then you're in for a rude awakening, but you should never go in feeling like I can't beat this person, right? You should always go in feeling like, yeah, I've got a shot. Um, And, and like you said at the start, you know, at worst 50, 50. Um, So I think like that is a great mindset. You don't have to lie to yourself and go, oh yeah, I'm going to kick their butt. But just to go like, yeah, no, it could definitely happen today. Yeah, if I do a little bit this, I got a game plan. I think having that mindset and reminding yourself of that regularly, especially, you know, the day before the match the and in, in, in the warm up before the match and stuff like reminding yourself of that and having that mindset, I think is uh, is pretty key. Okay, that's good feedback. That's my best my best answer off the cuff. Right. Listen, I I challenged you. I said I it'd be fun if we got into a little debate since we always agree on so many things. Either because uh, either because we're both uh, always right or we both uh, just have uh, surrounded ourselves with people who agree with us. Who knows? But um, I thought it'd be fun to disagree on a couple things. And the very first thing I picked, I found out that we disagreed on. It was totally unintentional. But I asked you about dominant eye, and uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, I won't. Uh, well, I will name names. I've I feel like I've seen the last couple of days Moratoglou post like two or three different things about uh, you know dominant eye and stuff and how it relates to technique. And I straight up asked you, uh, "What do you think?" And you're like, "Oh, pretty big believer." And I've always had this gut feeling in my head that it's BS. Of course, the idea of dominant eye is totally legit. Um, and I just did a quick look uh, just before coming on the pod of like uh, the the scientific articles and studies. And there's one, uh, there was one that found that. Um, you know there's a link between performance or if you look at like the higher rankings uh it's more common to see uh what they call contralaterality so if you're right-handed left eye dominant or if you're left-handed right eye dominant they find that more at the higher levels um so there's some stuff there but i've always it's just had a bit of an uh an aura of bullshit to me this idea that like uh your dominant eye is gonna uh or your technique should change uh, according to your dominant eye and oh yeah fetter is like this and uh rafa is like this and Uh, But I can't totally justify why I can say that I I haven't been able to find any scientific studies that prove that it's right. So at least that's in my favor. But I I can't justify why I think it's BS. Um, It's just always had a little bit of that feeling uh, for me. But maybe you can convince me otherwise.
1: Um, I'm not sure I can, but I think it's I think it's hilarious that you pick up this aura of BS while you watch a Patrick Mortigaloo Instagram video like that. It's not surprising. (laughs) Um, I'd love to say that I've seen them, but it's like I tend to scroll by those pretty quickly. How they keep yeah, coming oh, up on yeah. my feed all the time is shocking. It's, I just oh, don't it's understand. Rough. And shout out to Jordan who got locked by him. Good job, Jordan. Um,
0: no, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I, okay, so I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I can disagree with you on the technical aspect of things, but I think the only one thing that I'm a big believer in is you look at like a lot of times the stillness of Federer's head at impact on his forehand and the stillness of Rafa's head on impact on forehand or Carlos Moya's at the time is like, if you delineate that, that is a result of, um, like apparently Roger is left eye dominant but right handed, so there's apparently a spectrum in which he actually needs to have his head more facing one way so that he can more appropriately see his impact. So all the time that people are like, "Wow, he does such a great job of keeping his head still," um, there's theories to suggest that it's like, well, that's actually there's a physiological reason for that, like his head has to be in that position in order for him to see impact. And then,
0: I mean, his right uh, eye still works, sure, but you, I mean you can even you can do tests, but i but I get what you're saying
1: what's that? like you can do you yourself right now, like you yourself, Zach, or any anybody listening, you can do tests on yourself to see like your dominant eye tends to have a larger field of vision than your non dominant eye from what I understand now, like don't fight me on this um because you you might very well be right, so I can't speak too much to about how technique might change because of things but Mm. um i think it's very common that like some of the guys who've had the most stable head or like most still head um as it pertains to the forehands have been guys that have been i guess non-dominant like left eye dominant with their right arm or right eye dominant with their left arm
0: yeah it's interesting i mean but so then like what Uh, do you do if someone's right-handed and right eye dominant
1: are they just screwed then like no, and this is where it's like I would love to disagree with you. I would love to disagree with you, but I just think like <laughs> for that one specific thing of like how right. still your head is at impact, it is probably an advan- advantageous on your forehand specifically to be what I right. whatever the opposite eye dominant. Now past right. that, like I don't know if they've if they've tested any reaction time related stuff to do with eye dominance based on what hand you use. Like I don't know that, and I would have a, I'd be very hard pressed like with my understanding of how skill development works. And uh, how technical development works, I would be absolutely f bomb and shocked if there is, if you could delineate any technical differences because of a dominant I. So I'd love to disagree with you, Zach. But all right, shoot, there goes okay, our. Okay, uh... but is there? Some, I feel like, let's say I am disagreeing with you. Let's
0: like, what is. Uh, what is Patrick's point of view then? Like, or what was he like? I I mean, I scroll, I scroll out of those things pretty quick as well, but I I mean, I I think the perspective would be, I know for sure I've seen people, I mean, namely him, but I've seen people argue uh, like the head position should change on the serve based on the, which eye is dominant. So you should keep your head more sideways if you're left-eye dominant and if you're right-handed so that your left eye can be looking at the ball. But if you're right-eye dominant, you should, your head should be slightly more forward so that your the ball is in your the field of vision of your right eye. I've it seen is, that. This is the I, thing. I, is like, I, I don't know about you and just jump in. I would never fucking coach something like that. Like,
1: I would never mm. spend the time to be like, I don't think that's important. And I, and I, I right. worry about all the players who are being coached like that, where it's like, you unless you're you have a private court and you're able to train 40 hours a week, Like, how the hell is that the best use of your time? Sorry to jump in, but please continue.
0: Well, that, but no, but I mean, that's what I'm getting at with like my, my feel of this is bullshit. Because in theory, if that then leads to, uh, you know, much better timing, the ball is consistent more consistently in the middle of the strings. Maybe you have better, um, I can't imagine this would be true, but maybe you have better find motor skills there because your eye is seeing it better. So you can get a little better precision on the serve. If that happened, then, then it would be a valuable use of your time. I think the only thing is, is I just can't imagine that it has that big of an impact. That's, that's where it breaks down for me. But if it did have that impact, then I think it'd be very beneficial. But I, I have the same reaction as you. I look at it and I go like, really? Like, yeah, that, like, why don't you fix the 8 jillion other technical things that are wrong with your serve right. instead of dealing with that? I mean, my right. buddy has a good story. My buddy has a good story. At one point, his um, it's the benefit of having all these Swedish legends in tennis. But he, he was coaching a kid who got the chance to go and practice with Edberg. And this was just after or during the time that Edberg was coaching Federer. And he was talking about how Federer would uh, adjust the height of his toss to mess with the opponent's split step interesting which i thought was fascinating i thought super super cool because most people toss at the same height they'll adjust the right left or the front back yeah um but most people toss at the same height uh and he would adjust he would toss a little higher a little slower to to screw with the opponent's rhythm on their when they were making their split step because they would get into a rhythm right and he said that was a conscious decision by fed yes that's how i understood that's not how i understood that's how it was told to me yeah yeah and um but the, anyway, all that to say that the, play, the the player then went home, and and like and the story made its way around, and all the players were like, oh yeah, like this is this is what I'm gonna do, and it's like, yeah, maybe you have other things to worry about before you get to Federer's level, and you start making these sorts of adjustments, For sure. uh, you know, with this guy's godlike timing. Yeah. Um, so all that to say that like yeah, you know, maybe once your serve is uh, technically perfect and everything, then maybe you start adjusting your dominant eye thing. But I don't know. But I mean, I think that there's also arguments then about like. Where your contact point should be, and of course, we know like the contact point should adjust based on the feeling you want to have. But, like, I guess the argument is like, if once again, if you're a righty hitting a forehand, if you're left eye dominant, you need you should be making contact way more out in front. And if you're right eye dominant, then you should let the ball come into you more because then your right eye can see it. Once again, that's yeah, the just, argument,
1: it's a shitty argument. <laughs> I mean, sorry. I mean, yeah, I know it's not your argument as well, but it's so, just,
0: so much for us disagreeing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sorry, man. You're not actually more empty
0: it than I was. I thought. <laughs> yeah. oh. So um, I, okay. Uh, so Dominant and not a good.
1: There's another component to it as well. Where like, we talked about this in our perception episode, which is maybe it was episode two or episode three, but our brains are so good at snapping photos of things in real time. And like our brains, are unbelievable at tracking the speed of something and understanding where that object is going to be by the time it reaches whatever. So tennis-specific, like, our brains are really good at picking up a serve and figuring out where the actual ball will be at a certain point um, in space and time. And they've tested the shit out of this with uh, high-level baseball. Well, like, apparently, if a picture throws more than whatever miles m- miles per hour, the batter itself only has this very short window of it's something like four or five feet Um, from the time that the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, um, that the batter can perceive where the ball is going. And Mm -hmm. past that, the batter has, like, their bat. the batter's brain tricks themselves to think that they're tracking the ball the entire time, Mm -hmm. but the ball actually reaches a velocity where the human eye cannot pick up the speed of the ball. So all these guys that are, like, unbelievable hitters in baseball, their brain is pretty much projecting where the ball is going to be by the time they hit it. Yeah. Now... I'm not sure if there's studies done with that stuff to do with what eye is dominant what eye is not dominant um and i'm not sure if like the speed of a tennis ball the weight and speed of a tennis ball would would ever be a case where the, the brain would do similar things but uh, that was really interesting like this is like yeah. on a side note i think it's just interesting the, the, the way the brain works but um yeah I, i'd be curious how much of it is just like our brain is figuring shit out versus like how much do we actually see the ball hit our strings Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's been proven that we don't see the ball hit our strings. Um, Just the like, yeah, the refresh rate of our eyes versus how long it spends on the string bed. Um, But yeah, I I do think like a lot of, no, i was just say like, I do know, I remember looking into this a few years ago and reading up on on sports vision and stuff. And there's a lot of interesting stuff, but I think a lot of um, in in tennis, a lot of our vision is uh, we're using our peripheral vision a lot. Um, Mm. because the ball is moving too fast for us to track. Like the human eye is is actually terrible at like tracking an object, like fixating on it if it's moving. Like we can only do it at very low speeds, but we are, like you said, very good at picking things up in peripheral vision and and calculating where it's going to be. So once again, I guess maybe there's an argument then that if like, uh, like you said, if if your field of vision in one eye is bigger than the other, then that would help your peripheral vision. Because I think peripheral vision is the most important thing for like if you people uh, for perceiving well in tennis. Yeah. um so maybe there's an argument there but uh and i would yeah. I, I would support that in saying if you look at
1: like photos of andy roddick um hitting his forehand his head's looking straight forward mm-hmm. right and he now he's a right-handed right-eye dominant but most guys that appear to be right handed right-eye dominant or left-handed left-eye dominant they're generally looking forward at impact in photos now i've already fine situation situations where that's not the case right but how do you know
0: how do you know he's right-eye dominant um i asked him <laughs> Not. <laughs>
1: No, call me on that. Zach. No, I, I guess assume. I assume.
0: <laughs> what they completely debug? What, what do you mean? That completely disproves your argument. What he could be, if we found out he was left eye dominant, then that would show us that the left eye dominant right-handed players don't always look sideways and they look forward. You can't just assume because his head is looking forwards.
1: I'm surprised we got to episode five for you to call me on some bullshit here. <laughs> <Like>, exactly. <wow. laughs> no, yeah, it is a f- full assumption, full assumption. But I would say that. <laughs> I make the assumption, um, having looked at a lot of like what right eye, left eye dominant players look like at impact, and what a lot of right eye, right eye players look at impact. So I'm making an educated guess that he is right handed and right eye dominant. Beautiful eyes, by the way, too. You ever seen Andy's eyes? Oh my,
0: <laughs> that's the good oh. stuff right there. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, oh yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna jump in and say too, like the. Yeah, I mean, this study that I read just just briefly, it did indicate that, like, the, you know, there's less lag in the brain, basically, with contralateral players, because the right, like, the it's something along the lines of, like, the left eye is being processed in the left hemisphere, when the right hand is also being processed in the left hemisphere. Oh, that's so the argument. So the argument was that if the image is being processed through the dominant eye, um you know then it, then it's less delay to pass that information down to the to the dominant hand supposedly that i think that was their argument for why there are more top players who are contralateral than not um yeah. but there was no there was no implication there for technique or technical training it was just an observation on this might be why this phenomenon is is occurring but, right so my last question for you on this do you think any player has ever
1: won a grand slam because of what i is dominant I mean, no, that's my gut, yeah. but yeah. yeah. No, I, I love these conversations. I think they're very, very interesting, but it's like, I think if you scale things back to some point, it was like, what are the reasons players are winning? And if we had this data, it's yeah. like, oh, well, it's everybody who's not like non-I dominant or whatever you want to say is winning all the tournaments and maybe let's look into it more, but I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it, I mean, you you look for every little 1% improvement that you can make and and it's not just more toggle, of course. I know, I I know, Good, very good coaches who are big in dominant eye stuff um so yeah you know it's just uh, it's no disrespect on those coaches who do it because i'm fully open to being uh being ignorant i just haven't seen the proof or the convincing enough argument and like i said it's just a bit of a gut feeling yeah. i have but all and right maybe, well so much I'm... for us no maybe. maybe i
1: was being too dismissive at the end there but no you're right you're right you're yeah you're right on the anything can help then uh, yeah it's...
0: yeah Oh well so much for us disagreeing on things well we can try more talk, talk to me about women's stats Okay, so um, I was on
1: Bogdan Gregorenko's podcast. Uh, oh, I forgot lines. to listen to that. Oh, my goodness. It looked it uh, looks so, it, really good. Oh, it was really fun. If you if you enjoy two hours of two guys talking about all the times they used to drink together, then you're going to love it. Uh, but check that out. I think <laughs> it's available on YouTube if you're interested, uh, Between the Lines with Bogdan Gregorenko. Um, but he, he mentioned to me, he's like, one of the things he said to me was, because he interviewed me a little bit, I interviewed him a little bit, but he was like, hey, you're really driven by stats, eh? And I was like, huh? And he's like, yeah, you post stats a lot of times. Like anytime we've had conversations about tennis, you've always seemed to bring up some statistic to back whatever. And I was thinking about it, like, I, I guess I am driven by stats, but I wouldn't, it's funny how I wouldn't necessarily think of myself that way until somebody brought it up. Mm. Um, but that said, I've got these these stats for you here, and I'm a really big believer in plus minus, because I think it's the, the ultimate, like, if I could only do one game as a coach ever, the only game I'd ever do is plus five, minus five. That's it. Mm-hmm, if I can sure. have one game, yeah. just give me that game, and that's it. So looking at the Australian Open
0: uh Woman's final. Um, Can I jump in? Sorry. When you're when you're counting plus minus, whether it's for the game or for this particular Mm -hmm. for the final, are you just doing winners on forced errors, or are you doing winners plus forced errors and then minus on forced errors? Okay, this is gonna. Yeah, this is a great question. I'm looking at
1: Craig O'Shaughnessy stats, and I would hope to high hell that the leading statistician, tennis statistician in the world, looks at winners and forced errors together because okay, we can get into a whole discussion of that, but uh, but you but you but you don't know. I don't. I don't. You know what? I will actually message him and just say, "Hey, I just want to be sure on your stats before I roast the entire WTA on a podcast about how you're actually delineating <laughs> these statistics." Okay. okay, tell your story, and then we'll we'll discuss. All right, uh, Australian Open final for the ladies. Uh, Sabalenka wins in the final. Um, she beat uh, Rabequina. Rabequina's stats on the match: she was a minus fifty-three. So for those that are unfamiliar, um, Rabakina hit 28 winners in the match. She made 81 errors in the match. So plus minus, for those who don't know, you take your winner count and your error count and you subtract them. So in the finals of the one of the largest tournaments in the world, the finalist um, made 53 more unforced errors than winners. Um, so on the flip side, you're like, wow, this match must have been a route for Sabalenka, huh? And if we look at Sabalenka stats, she hit 60 winners. And she made 98 errors. Um, so Sabalenka's stats were minus 38 on the match. So to break that down, I guess sometimes it's fun to do, like, what's minus 38 in game score? So I guess you'd do four points, roughly that, divided by... Anyway, it's a lot of games. It's a lot of games that were mm-hmm. lost because of that.
0: Good save so, on having to do the quick math there.
1: Yeah, right. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, that's my grade 10 education. Thank you, Malvern Collegiate. Um, <laughs> so looking at these stats, to me, it's just it's shocking. And I know there's... ATP guys that sometimes have stats like this as well. So I'm not saying it's a, it's, it's a one-way street by any means, but a lot of ATP stats, you'll see statistics that are a lot closer to zero. And one of our rules at our Academy is like, if you play a match and you're kind of around a zero, you have a really good chance to win. If you play a match mm-hmm. and you're a plus five, you probably won. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at these stats, like it, it could not be a bigger stage. And the player that won was a minus 38. And this, that doesn't make sense to me. How can you possibly win one of the biggest tournaments in the world making... 98 errors and being a minus 38 in the match. That's my, my that's my thesis on to you, Zach.
0: Yeah. I mean, so now that you've stated your, your controversial take, I'm going to sort of moderate it here. I actually, I think it's a shame we don't have all the info. I, my theory is this. I know that I've heard, um, I've heard, uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy specifically state that he thinks that unforced error is the most useless stat in tennis. Because he thinks every error is forced. You, you just by putting the ball in the court, you've done something, whatever. So he, he thinks unforced errors are useless. At least I remember. Can we talk about that for him, a sec. Say Yeah,
1: sure. What do you think?
0: About I that? think he's wrong. Yeah, I think he's wrong. Okay, me too. Great. I think yeah. <laughs> moving on. We disagree um, again. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think, and so that so that's one thing. And then I also know that there's lots of places that either only track winners and unforced errors, and they don't track forced errors. Or they just do winners errors um, and they just lump all errors in the same category. And so I would guess that you see this more on the women's side due to the way things are being counted because they're not counting the forced errors. This is a theory. I have no evidence to back it up, but this is my theory. And my, uh, my argument would be that there are far more forced errors than winners on the women's side. Um, you know, both because the women play more through the court and the men play with more angles, and also probably just because the men uh, generally can play a little bit more powerfully, and so there's a more chance that they can get the ball past someone um, rather than a woman uh, who's going to touch it. That would be kind of my rough theory, and so my my guess would be then the women hit more forced errors, and so if you're not counting them or if you're lumping them in the minus category, then of course your minus is going to be hugely inflated, and if you don't count them, then it's going to take away from their plus score because they're going to hit fewer winners um and you're not counting the four errors, so then it takes out a huge chunk and it, it it distorts their their plus minus score that would be my theory um but without the without the detailed data it's hard to say okay so jump in on your theory I mean that would make absolute
1: sense because I'm looking at this and having looked at charted matches religiously for a while I just don't see a way how any of these players wins with the plus minus they have like ever so it, yeah. it, it it has to, it, to some extent, it has to be an accounting error, right? Uh, or accounting error. Um, yeah, I mean, you'd, I guess you'd, that... you'd
0: think so, yeah. I mean, they did yeah. win. That's the thing. So, yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that breaks into the next part about statistics that I have for you, which is like, I think sometimes it's really reckless to be posting general statistics without them be, without it being a fairly comprehensive deep dive into why those statistics are occurring or when those statistics are occurring um, as it could relate to a variety of things, but specifically, which goes back to one of our episodes, phases of play. Um, I feel, have you you been,
0: this is like a throwback to one of my, uh, one of my coronavirus blog posts. Oh, no way. Yeah. Sorry. I'll jump in while you're talking your thing, but I I wrote this, I wrote a piece, I'm just pulling it up, called Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics. And I talked about some of the, uh, some of the things that we need to remember when, when discussing stats, but go ahead. Oh, great. And you can find that on Zach Olin coaching.com or is it Zach <laughs> Let's go with Zach Olin because, you know, oh, that's how it's O'Lean? pronounced. But, 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 uh, yeah, Swedish, not Quebecois, French. Although, fair enough, I'm born there. So, uh, right. Zach Olin, uh, Z A C K O H L I com.
1: Nailed it. Nailed it. Love the plug. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because I've got numbers for you again where throughout, um, there's Instagram. I guess post or person or group called Tennis Oz Gig, and they post mm. a lot of really interesting statistics. Now I like mm-hmm. the statistics because I like to think I'm smart enough, which is probably not true, to dive further into statistics to actually come up with some meaningful measurement, right? But the one they have here is on Novak Djokovic's almost entire, uh, entire Australian Open, and they talk about does he play on the rise, like how often he plays on the rise, how often he plays at the peak, and how often he plays in the fall, and they also have the statistics of how often he wins doing all of those things. Do you want me to tell you what the stats are or just keep
0: going? Uh, a brief summary. Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. So throughout the tournament, um, Novak played on the rise 36% of the time and mm-hmm. he won 53% of the points when he played on the rise. Okay. Novak played at the peak 22% of the time, um, but he won 61% of the points when he played at the peak.
0: Okay. And
1: then he played on the fall or on the decline 42% of the time and won 48% of the points when he played on on the fall. So the reason I break this down is you might look at these statistics and say, oh, well, like he wins 53% of the points when he plays on the rise, he should do that. Or it's, oh, he played he won 61% of the points when he played at the peak, he should do that more. Mm -hmm. And then he lost 48% of the points when he played in the fall. He should never play in the fall, like no player should ever play on the fall or on the decline. And, yeah. and I go back to the reason I think this is misleading is Cause there's a lot of coaches or parents or players who are going to look at this data and think exactly that where what it doesn't take into account is like, well, the phase of plays and like, what phase of play was he in when he was taking the ball on the rise? And yeah. did that phase of play, like what percentage of time did, would he win a point in that phase of play? And then it would be the same thing for at the peak or on the fall. So I just think overall, yeah. like statistics are such a great tool, but if they're not broken down really specifically so that people can like disseminate the data correctly i think that can be dangerous
0: yeah yeah i mean i i completely agree i mean i think like um you know we're seeing we're seeing more and more there's more and more data being collected in tennis, right? There's more and more video available. There's more and more access to tools like Hawkeye. There's more and more people. There's more and more analysts uh, cropping up and doing good work. And, um, you know, we're seeing more and more data being collected, more matches being charted and so on and so forth. And I do think the guys behind Tennis Australia, the gig is Game Insight Group. And I know at least one of the guys involved is Shane Leonage, And he's a great, great analyst. Actually, um, he's the analyst for uh, Sabalenka. Who won the Australian Open? Um, so he's Aha, at least one of the full guys. Circle. One of well, exactly one of the guys involved in that, and he was actually one of the guys who inspired my post because I saw some of his stuff. He runs data-driven sports analytics. You can find them on Instagram or wherever you go, um, and they put out some interesting stuff as well. And I was looking at it, and I had sort of the same feeling. And he and I have, have chatted. and He's a great guy, and they and does some really and he does some really good work with his players. Um, but yeah, no, I completely agree. I think like we're we're in this stage now where we're getting there's access to so much data we're still um not quite sure how to use it in some situations um mm-hmm. I think that's how I would that's how I would present it. So I think a lot of people are still trying to find, you know what are the kpis what are the key performance indicators for a match what what are the key things that we should be measuring um you know and and just because this works for this player does it work for another one just because this worked in this situation does it work for another one mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean I, I I in my post back in when 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 was this May 2020. That's a long time ago. I I wrote, you know, the uh, first of all, stats are situational because, like, I remember mm-hmm. one thing. Like uh, O'Shaughnessy talks about all the time is like, how often are you able to take a forehand uh, off for the uh, for the first serve? And it's like, well, yeah, but of course, like. Of course, and and, then you can show up stats going like, oh, well, when players take a forehand after the serve, they win more points. Well, it's like, yeah, but they're taking a forehand because they got an easier ball. If you just decide to run around every single shot and hit a forehand, you're going to be out of position and you're going to hit a crappy shot. So, like, depends on the situation. Like you said, the phase of play. I also said statistics are player dependent, right? People have different game styles and some players are going to be better at net. Some players aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also correlation doesn't imply causation right you can sit there and go like oh yeah this player this player is winning more matches because he's winning more games out of the, out of the first four games of the match he wins on average uh, 2.5 of them so he's winning more matches it's like well it could just be that he's winning more games because he's better than the other players it does right. not because he's winning those games at the start that then he ends up winning yeah um sure. so i i think i think we have to keep those rules in mind and and um yeah i think we're still in this we're still in a very early stage um when it comes to analytics and tennis. We're far we're much further ahead than we were 10 years ago, but I think we're at the stage now where there's tons of data being collected and you know we're not totally sure on how to interpret it because tennis is so complex. It's it's different than 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 some other sports where you can clearly identify like, okay, here are the metrics that that uh that lead to to better performance. And tennis it's a little bit more complicated. And um no, I mean I, I think that yeah. I, I think that the guys like the one, like the ones you describe. I think they're, I mean, they're doing good work and they're putting interesting stuff out there, but I do think you have to be careful what implications you draw from it. I think if they, I think if you just put the data out there and you just say, Hey, check this out. Here's some info. I think that's fine. If you try to suggest then that, Hey, this is what you should do for your game or this is why he won. I think that's a little bit more dangerous, but if you're just presenting the data, I think that's, that's interesting for everyone.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I, I can't, I can't argue there. Um, I got to go back and read that post years. Um, and I think one of my issues with it is this specific group. At the start of the matches in the Australian Open, they were putting up posts to suggest, um, statistically, what a player had to do in certain situations to be successful. And there's some some truth there, but I would really again, it's like, well, who's who's actually the one who's is it just like just a data scientist who's saying this, or is this somebody who is a data scientist that also has a really good understanding of of tactics and performance. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I'm also like anything else. I'm not suggesting I'm right about this. I want to, I want to continue to say, and I'll say it every podcast. I don't have all the answers by any means. I just have a lot of questions, but you know,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone else wants to hear me, I actually appeared, uh, uh, Shane and his buddy host, or at least, uh, co-host part of a podcast anyway, called the first serve. And there's a segment called crunching the numbers. And I actually appeared as a guest, uh, on that one during, uh, during COVID to talk about this stuff. Um, and we had some, some interesting discussion. So if anyone wants to listen to that, um, you can uh, look it up the first survey that was called crunching the numbers, um, or you can just message me and I'll send it to you. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, on the one hand, I think like the one thing that's, that I have come to realize over the last few years is like, you know, these aren't just guys sitting in front of their TV, writing stuff down on a notepad. Like these are people, a lot of these analysts are doing hardcore, uh, data collection, first of all, from numerous right. sources. And then they're doing some real data science. Now, of course you do need the tennis eye. And right. I brought that up on the podcast. That's what made me think of it. Uh, you do need that tennis eye, but you know, the full respect because the, they're not just a couple of guys, you know, punching numbers into a calculator. There's some serious statistical analysis going on. Um, I, I just think that tennis is pretty complex so it's we're not yeah. quite there yet but uh but full respect to them they they are uh usually qualified uh statisticians or data scientists so yeah and maybe I sound unappreciative but I, I certainly appreciate the work
1: because it, it's interesting I just would like everything else I'd like it to be um the great work and the perfect uh execution of what all that stuff means yeah they can't have it yeah, all that true sure.
0: yeah so it goes yeah. last non non disagree topic cuz i think we're aligned with this one but it's been on my mind lately and um is the idea of grips and uh extreme uh extreme western grips uh with juniors because uh-huh. i think i i know from experience and i've been talking about this with some coaches here at home in sweden but um you know for a lot of people it's a red flag you know the extreme western grip and of course it depends how you define extreme western but let's say western grip anyway um and I generally speaking, am of the, um, I'm of the opinion that, you know, I I don't know about like under 10, maybe under 12 level. If I would change it, I certainly wouldn't develop it. And if I were developing someone from a young age, then I would certainly address it. But sure. um, once they're older, I am essentially of the belief that it doesn't make a difference. And like, you know, maybe you have a little bit more difficulty on low balls, but I've heard so many times uh like oh it's going to be tough to handle fastballs or oh you're not going to be able to hit flat uh, or you're not going to be able to hit hard and i've just coached too many uh really good players who can do all of those things with extreme grips um to to believe it you know i think there's there's so much more uh more to hitting a good ball than uh, than that but it sounds like we agree on that i think unfortunately yeah um no
1: i think <laughs> i think to your your point that you eloquently outlined at the start if we're up to us, everybody would have grips that allow them to do everything in every situation. Now, yeah. the Western grips um, get lumped in this category of like they're, they're being tactical limitations. Um, and maybe that's true, but I think a lot of players have tactical limitations as well. So I'm not sure that like um, a grip alone is solely responsible for any tactical limitations. Um, but I will say like, like you mentioned, the common one with a Western grip is like, oh, if the, if the ball gets low, it becomes challenging. And I had a couple of players they were younger that had Western grips and ironic. I mean, they were still under the age of 12. So I actually changed their grip from that, but I got a little bit defensive because every coach and their mother came up to me and saying like, you gotta, you gotta change the kid's grip. You gotta change the kid's grip. And because of the age they're at, they were like, okay, yes, there was time to do it. So we did it. And it's, it's been, it's been a, a good call, but that led me down this mm-hmm. rabbit hole or pathway of looking at, I guess, players on tour that have very extreme grips of which there are many. And yeah. it's, it's tough to break down, like, well, what are the things I can't do? Like, you look at Karen Kachanov, it's like, what can't he yeah. do? And we could make an argument, I'd have to dive in the statistics, that maybe he struggles to re- return big first serves um, with his forehand grip the way that is. Now, I'd have to look into more data to see if that's true or not. But the one you mentioned with, like, the height of the ball, and people all say, yeah, well, if the ball gets below their knee, it's going to be very, very tough. It's like, okay. Go watch go watch ATP or WTA match and look at how often the ball actually travels below somebody's knee,
0: mm.
1: because the ball has so much stored energy, or if it has some semblance of height, the bounce is always going to. I think it's I think scientifically it's always going to maintain at least forty percent of the max height that it had, or something in that range. So if you look at like like yes, if a player can keep a ball below somebody's knee, maybe it would be more beneficial against a player with a western grip, but that just doesn't happen. The ball just doesn't do that. Even on a lot of volleys, like if you, if you okay, and I'm, I'm getting sidetracked now, Zach, but if you warm up and you're in this like tennis-specific warm up, and you say to the volleyer, hey, you're going to keep going until you get 10 volleys below below knee height of the, the baseliner. Um, mm. The only way they can get that done is if the baseliner allows the ball to reach its peak and then decline.
0: Mm. But
1: but it, it's almost, like in a lot of situations, it's almost impossible to keep the ball that low. Mm. So I know I'm changing subject a little bit here and I don't mean to but because we, we don't disagree on the grip thing this is the first thing that I would say. But Right. Yeah.
0: No, yeah. No, <laughs> I I don't mind the change. I don't mind the change of subject at all. I think it I think it's all tied in actually. I don't think it's much of a change of subject. But yeah, I mean I just think um because you just hear that a lot and it does beg the question like okay, what if it's not a limitation, then why would I change it at a younger age? but i guess the answer is that okay it's it's a slight limitation but it's not worth the change is probably the argument um probably. because because yeah i don't think i don't think there's any reason it should limit you on fastballs like, yeah. sorry, I just don't like the yeah. only possible argument. Like if people say like, oh, you're, you're, the strings are going to be pointing down. I think that's BS. Like, mm-hmm. sorry, if you're, if you're getting late, you're getting late. Uh, like, I don't care about that. Yeah. I, you, maybe you could argue that in a more extreme grip is more comfortable further in front of you. And when you're receiving a fastball, you want to absorb it. So they, you want the contact to be closer to you. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, but once again, coach too many good players, uh been with too many good players who hit with grips like that and can do world-class things with the ball for me to believe that that um for that's a problem same thing hitting flat that's a joke so many players with with western grips can hit the crap out of the ball oh man i don't buy that at all um and then low balls yeah potentially yes but like you said doesn't happen a ton uh better movement will solve that a lot of the time and then of course you can always uh, hit a slice forehand uh, you can always hit a slice forehand which plenty of pros do For um sure. and and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it men's and women's side plenty of players do it really nothing wrong with it in this day and age um and so like yeah okay could you argue maybe there's a limitation sure in a dream world would you develop someone with an eastern or a semi-western yeah probably but is it worth the change to sit there and go that's why I said like especially once they're 13, 14, 15 like what are what am I going to get out of this like it's going to be so much work for them to lose confidence maybe they're going to have less skill less feel for the ball even if the technique is cleaner because they're not used to it they're not going to be able to do all the things that they used to be able to do like I can't see um I shouldn't say I can't see a way in which that works out but that's too aggressive but I think that my default approach anyway is that if they're yeah if they're not hitting well um it's not because of the grip it's because uh of some other technical thing
1: and i think this goes back to a bunch of conversations that we've had amongst stuff and amongst coaches where like i think sometimes a coach would be like oh look at his grip and so like, yeah congratulations you saw that the grip is more extreme than somebody else like what do you want an mm-hmm. award and it's like but mm-hmm. they and sometimes i think coaches and i'm not saying i'm different but coaches see what's obvious and not necessarily what might be the most impactful thing leading to a player's development in a certain situation, you know. Yeah. So it's like I don't. It's yeah. when you walk by a group of coaches at a tournament and they're all sitting down and watching a group of players. Like most of the feedback tends to be somewhat, somewhat negative towards what the players are doing, and you'll hear a lot of the feedback will be very obvious, like huh, these aren't able to survive with that grip, or I like guess things like that. And that.
0: yeah, um, well, and let's not forget the easiest way to appear uh, to to appear like an expert is to is to be negative about things. Right. Oh, and I would think of this whole episode, Zach. So what do you? What do you like? The, <laughs> that's because you're an expert. No, but right. you're like, it's the easiest way, of course, is to is to try is to at least attempt to appear smart. A lot of people can see through it, but it's the easiest way to to appear smart is to just point out what's wrong with everything, right? Sure. But it's much more valuable to be able to assess. Okay, what needs to be done, and 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 uh, what needs to be done in order to get better, and what are the steps that need to be taken, and so on and so forth. But so I think a lot of people fall into that trap don't get me wrong of course it's fun sometimes to just sit and say hey look at this look at that but i think sometimes people fall into that trap of uh of just thinking that that's going to get them clicks or business or whatever if you just tell a parent yeah your kid is shit and here's why um like anyone can do that but of course it i mean that's the same reason why negative news sells viewers on tv and everything right so um not to mention all the punditry and everything but um yeah two quick stories for you go for it so um there's a there an old
1: commentator that did a lot of I guess commentating of tennis in Canada named Peter I think it's Peter Burwash I think it was his name Does that sound right yeah that sounds right yeah yeah Peter Burwash um, in the late eighties he came out with this article talking about um, open stance forehands and open stance backhands and how they were the the future of tennis and at mm-hmm. the time the tennis purists laughed at this guy and they were like no way no no way but Peter at the time and I'm pretty sure that's the name Peter at the time was smart enough to see the future and he watched enough pro tennis to be like well they're doing it all the time anyway. Um, And the only reason I bring this up is because uh, there was a time when Federer started to win slams, Peter Barash came out with another article that suggested that in order for him to be successful against Rafa, who had beat him a couple times, that Federer needed to change his forehand grip from being Eastern to being more extreme. And I thought it was the boldest article ever written, and it has not held up. But it's another example of a guy that at one time saw something and was really, really right about something and then could not have been more wrong about something else. And it's interesting, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, I mean, that's life, right? Like that's, it's so, that's why it's the gray zone. Um, Every drink. That's it. But I mean, like, yeah, you can be a good person and do bad things. You can be a bad person and do good things. You can be a smart coach and and do some bad coaching every now and then. And you can be a terrible coach and come up with a bit of genius every now and then. And of course, everything in between. Um, That's the tough thing. And I think that's why we always, sometimes all in one day. Oh, trust me definitely and i mean like i think that's why you always have to stay on edge as a coach um i because because i write because i write that wave all the time i'll tell you there's days i come off court and i go i am a fucking genius <laughs> and then there's other days where you go like wow i can't coach for shit oh, so i man, mean totally, totally you know it's right. you it, it, it's what is what's that quote to the what's that it's the fable of the king king brings the wise man in and says i want you to you know, I don't know if it was a bracelet or whatever, but something that I can look at and and it'll keep me humble when things are good and give me hope when when things are bad. And the wise man comes back with a thing that says it will pass. I mean, that's fundamental. I mean, that's fundamentally it, right? I mean, like you're gonna have your great moments, but you got to stay humble because uh, you never know what you're wrong about. So yeah, yeah, no,
1: well said, well said. Well, Zach, it's been a pleasure as always, and
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, and can I just say, if you enjoyed it. Uh, please let us know. It means the world. Thank you to those of you who've uh, reached out with positive feedback. And if you've got negative feedback, you can shove it. So, yeah. We don't want to hear it. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're right about everything. All yeah, right. right. Um, Thanks, so bud. Well, well said, Zach. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. That was the Grey Zone. See ya.